Good morning, I'm Joe Collins. Welcome to See Me Church. And uh, as you can see on the screen above me, there are always things going on and the announcements are up there, the updates for the week, but you can also go to our website, seemechurch.org, and always click on the calendar and find out what's going on. Today I want to jump into our lesson, and we are in the midst of a series. It's a mini-series, but it's called, uh, it's about the church, and we've been kind of on it for the past couple of weeks, uh, and specifically it's about our church and what we believe here at Simi Church. And so far, we've learned that at Simi Church, we believe that the Bible is the best source of truth in our world today, and in it... We learned that Jesus is Lord. He lived a sinless life or accredited life, as we talked about last week, died on the cross and rose to life again. Now, today, I want to continue talking about what we believe at Simi Church and take a look at two very important topics, repentance and baptism. Now, in all honesty, each of these topics deserves their own little mini series in their own right. But today, I'm going to do my best to limit myself to just Acts chapter 2 and the information that's relevant in that chapter. Now, I'm going to tell you on the front end, I am going to make a reference two times to some Old, Old Testament passages, but they're only for explanatory reasons, background information to help you understand why in Acts chapter 2, baptism, or, or what, how the people in Acts chapter 2 would have understood the terms baptism and repentance. So there was this TV show. I don't know if it's on anymore. Uh, I used to watch it when it was first on and I don't watch as much TV uh, as I used to. And so I don't see it much anymore, but it was called The Biggest Loser. Maybe you've heard about it. I know it was popular and it was all about people losing weight. And it was really shocking how quickly people could lose weight. You watch the show and you're like, wow, I mean, they would lose so much weight in such a quick amount of time. But you know, as you got to into the show, if you watch it more and more often, you realize that that wasn't really accurate because yes, they did shed weight quickly, but there was a lot of background in each of the contestants' lives that kind of played into them being ready to lose the weight at that point. You know, the same is true when we think about terms like repentance and baptism. There's actually more going on in our understanding of those words that we need to examine than just, boom, repent and be baptized. So, as I said, I'm going to do my best today to dive into those subjects, but keep it to Acts chapter 2 with just a couple caveats from the Old Testament. And the goal is to try to understand those two terms as they would have been understood in Acts chapter 2. So this by no means is the definitive everything you need to know about repentance and baptism. Let's turn to Acts 2. We're going to start in verse 37, but we'll pray before we get started. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the great worship we had and the great time of prayer and just to intercede for each other. Thank you for Nate getting baptized and what a joy and thrill that is to see him come to repentance and faith in you and make this decision. I pray, God, that you bless him in his life going forward. But help us today as we look at your word to understand it, to let it sink into our lives, to become part of who we are, and help us to walk out of here with a, with a deeper understanding of repentance and baptism and even a, even a deeper desire to share that with our community, our oikos, our neighbors. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know we've been digging into Acts chapter 2. We're just kind of methodically plying, uh, uh, plowing through the chapter. And, and in the, and so far, what we've kind of drawn out of that chapter is that sometime in the early spring of A.D. 30 or 33, depending on which year you, you know, calendar you use, on Shabbat or Pentecost, which was a Jewish holiday that celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, some very unusual things began to happen in Jerusalem. Jerusalem at a gathering of some of Jesus's followers. There was this thunderous noise. There were these tongues of fire. There were these miraculous vocalizations. And we ended last week with Peter, one of Jesus's followers, in the midst of all this commotion, standing up and explaining to a crowd of literally thousands that had gathered that all of these miraculous events, these signs and these wonders that were occurring were really God's way of validating his message that he was bringing to them. God was underlining, he was exclamating point, exclamation pointing Peter's testimony that he was giving, that he gave in Acts chapter 2. And that testimony was specifically that Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. In other words, he was both Lord, which meant God, and he was also Christ or Messiah or the promised descendant of King David who would come to deliver the people from their enslavement. And that that crowd of thousands that had gathered there on that, on that afternoon because of all the noise and commotion, that, that crowd that kind of came together to see what was going on there in Acts 2, 30, 33 AD on Shavuot, that they were responsible for, that, for Jesus' death. So today, I want to pick up our story from right there, and I want to focus on how the crowd reacted to Peter's accusation, to the message that he gave them. And maybe I, we might be able to offer some insight into their response and why they responded the way they did. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and asked and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The story goes that after Peter gave this incredible testimony that many in the crowd... You'll find out later that it was over a it was it was several thousand. So this crowd was even bigger than that. That many in the crowd had a very deep, deeply personal, and a very immediate connection or reaction to Peter's accusation that they were somehow responsible for the death of Jesus, and they had a strong desire to make amends. Now I don't know about you. I've read the Bible a lot in my 29 years as a Christian, and even even some before that. And I've read this passage, I, I couldn't even count how many times I've read it. But I have to admit that even, even now when I read it, it strikes me as odd. 
that out of this crowd of thousands, several thousand of them somehow made this connection that they were somehow responsible for the death of Jesus, which happened seven weeks ago before this during the Feast of Unleavened Bread right after Passover. Or during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I, I have thought about that a lot. Like, how is that connected? How is there, a, what, in, in what way could these people here on Pentecost or Shavuot be connected to that event that happened seven weeks before? What was it about that event that drew out their sense of conviction and responsibility and a desire to make amends? I mean, they, they really didn't play a role in the death of Jesus. I mean, that was the temple authorities. They accused him of blasphemy and handed him over to the Romans who crucified him. The people in the crowd really had nothing to do with any of that. So what was it that made them feel connected to this, this experience, this, this, uh, to, that, to, the, to his death? What was it that made them want to make amends? Now, some of you that have been Christians for a while, you might say, well, Jesus came to offer himself as a sacrifice of atonement. I'm going to say a bunch of religious words. For all humanity, and because all humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they therefore made the connection that he was dying for them and for their sin. And you would be absolutely right. The problem is, is that theology, that connection, hadn't happened yet for the crowd that was there on that Shavuot morning or afternoon, whenever it happened. They didn't have that connection just yet. In fact, that connection wouldn't get developed, that theology wouldn't really get developed for another 20 years. So what was it? What was different? What, what was the connection or how did the connection get made for these people who were there physically on that afternoon that Peter preached this sermon and convicted them so powerfully about their responsibility and their part in the death of Jesus? Well, I want to offer today a possible explanation. I can't say I know for sure I wasn't there. But... If you'll indulge me, I would like to take you on a journey. I would like you and I to go back in time some 2,000 years ago, but not just back in time as, as, a, as a, a fly on the wall, but back in time as a person immersed in the culture of Judaism in the first century. So I want us to go back and be sort of a participant in the crowd, so we're going to have to use some imagination, and you're going to have to use some imagination. And between me and you and the Holy Spirit, maybe we'll begin to get a little bit more of a sense of what was it that helped these people make this connection and respond so immediately and so heart with, with such a heartfelt emotion to what Peter had told them. I had a friend, Marty, he used to say, we need to smell the text. The first whiff that I want you to take is found in Deuteronomy 16, and it has to do with what's known as the pilgrimage festivals. 
Deuteronomy 16, verse 16 there. Three times a year, all of your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So we're going way back in time now, all the way back to Moses, the days of Moses and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And we learn in the law that was given way back when that God had ordained centuries before the miraculous events of Acts chapter 2, he had ordained that three times a year all Jewish males, and, and let me just say this really quickly, women were also included. The language just was always written in the masculine. So all Israelites were commanded to go to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple three times a year to offer gifts and to renew their covenant to their God. These feasts were known as Passover, which was associated with unleavened bread, happened in early spring. On our calendar, it was like May and April, and it celebrated the Exodus. The second one was Shavuot, or Pentecost, which came in the later part of spring, May or June, and it commemorated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And then there was Sukkot. Happened in the late fall, usually September, October by our calendar. And it began five days after the Day of Atonement. So they were, the Day of Atonement, Sukkot, were sort of put together as one, one festival, kind of like Passover and, and Unleavened Bread. Well, there was Sukkot, uh, there was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Sukkot. And this commemorated the wandering of the Israelites in the desert for 40 years when they had to rely on God's provision. Now, all three of these festivals were an integral part of Jewish life and created an opportunity for the believers to reaffirm their faith, strengthen their identity of God's chosen people, and elevate corporate worship, not unlike church does for us today. Or even holidays or vacations or anything that people do repeatedly these festivals developed a sense of familiarity and connection to your community. Years ago, my wife and I had a uh, had an annual tradition, basically mostly annual, mostly a tradition. Well, how do I say this? We did it for a while, and uh, and it was to go to Palm Springs for vacation in the summer. And uh, it's not because we liked to bake in the heat and sweat to death that we did this. It was because it was cheap in the summer. And we would like to invite people to join us. And oftentimes people did. And one family in particular would join us frequently. And it kind of became a thing. Even to this day, we will, we will tend a vacation with them when we find the opportunity. And there's a real sense of closeness and connection that we have to one another. There's a real sense of family, community, familiarity, all that is going on as a result of just going on vacation once a year for maybe a week down to Palm Springs. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute, we're going back in time. I want you to imagine growing up in Palestine as a Jew and your entire life, every year, three times a year, you would take a journey to the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it would took days, maybe even weeks, just to get to, through the journey. And then you would stay in Jerusalem for maybe a week or so, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little less. And it would be a big, giant national celebration. 
celebrating your history and your faith and all of those things. I want you to imagine how familiar you would become with the city itself and with its inhabitants. When we would go to Palm Springs, we got very familiar with the people there. And, and to this day, I go to Palm Springs and I think I live there. Like, I feel like I own the place. I know it pretty well. Imagine three times a year, every year for your whole life going and doing this journey and all the people you would have mixed with as, as people from all over Palestine began to kind of fill the roads and, and make their way into the city. Many families, the smart ones, would, would have arrangements made in advance. Hey, we're going to stay at uh, so-and-so's place, and that's just going to be our place. We're going to go there every year, three times a year. And, and imagine how close and connected they would feel to the people that they stayed with and the people that they traveled with. Others would have to scramble and find rooms, and, and maybe they had to bounce around and stay at different places. Jesus himself did these journeys. It's why he was such good friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany. Jesus lives some 80 miles away up in Galilee. How did he know them? Most likely stayed at their place throughout his whole life. Three times a year during the holidays. You walk together, you travel together, you eat together, you live together. I mean, there's a real sense of family, even on a very extended, to, to a very extended degree. And so really, if we could go back in time, Jesus wouldn't have been a stranger. We might have known him. You might have walked with him a few holidays growing up. You might have known his brothers and sisters. You might have stayed nearby. Maybe you heard him speak one time. Maybe you saw him perform a miracle. But the point is, he was a known entity and he was familiar to the community. And add to that that he was very popular. He was known as a miracle worker. It wasn't just his brothers that would be told, well, if you could be more like Jesus... A lot of people might have been told that. My kids and I were watching TV on the side point here, and it was about this kid, I don't know, 15, 16, and they circumnavigated navigated the globe in a boat all by themselves. And they were like 15 or 16. My, my son was like 20 at the time, and I looked at him and I said, what have you done? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's who Jesus was to the people. Like there was a real sense of connection to him, and maybe even real. Like you may have even interacted with him or talked to him or seen him or heard him speak or watched him perform a miracle. Who knows? But it wasn't this sort of unfamiliar, weird, random person that one day you get told, oh, he died for your sin, and you're like, okay, I guess I have to believe that. No, no, he was a, a real person to us, to you. He would have been a real person to us had we lived then had we had those regular traditions. Even if just by reputation alone, it had been like, yeah, he's our guy. Verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and other apostles, what shall we do? As I said last week, it's very possible in Acts chapter 2 that pe many people in the crowd 
had had interaction or significant sense of connection and familiarity to Jesus Christ himself. And it's very possible that many of those people who were there on Pentecost that spring were there in early spring celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and were there when Jesus was crucified. Imagine. You head off to Jerusalem, your family's in tow. You get to your rented house there in the city. It's the one you've stayed at for many years. You check in, you put your bags down, and then rumor starts spreading that Jesus is coming to town, and you're like, oh my gosh, we gotta go see him. I mean, he's, he's, he's become greater than John the Baptist. He's a hero. He's, he's coming in now, let's go, and you run down outside the city walls and you line up on the street and you see him entering the city. There's thousands of people all around you lining the streets and you're all cheering Jesus and you're praising God. He's your hero. You get a little choked up by the enthusiasm and the excitement and the thrill of this guy who's done some pretty amazing things and who's said some pretty amazing things and who might be the Messiah. Nobody knows for sure, but we're starting to think maybe he is because, well, there's no one else like him. And maybe you get a little emotional. I was at a golf tournament once. I'm a sort of a golf fan. I mean, I've kind of was really a golf fan and then I kind of stopped because I can't actually play golf very well. So I have, but back when I was a golf fan and thought I could play golf, one of my favorite golfers was Phil Mickelson. And I got to tell you, I never have seen Tiger play. It would have been awesome to be able to go to a tournament and see him play. But I went to one that Phil was in, and so I, I, like I know him, Phil. And uh, he came around the turn, and all of a sudden the crowd got huge, and people were just excited to see him pass through, like we had camped out on one of the holes. And I gotta say, I had stayed on that hole for a while, and group after group had gone by, and it was pretty boring. There's a lot of good golfers, and they're all good, I'm not down on them, but, but golfers, if you're into golf at all, they have a thing where they have no emotion, that's kind of a thing, and they like don't even acknowledge the crowd because they're in the zone, and they just do everything the same way, they repeat everything, it's, it's kind of, on one sense, it's impressive, but it's actually boring. Well, he came through, and all of a sudden, the crowd got up, the energy got up, and you know what I noticed? When he came around the corner, he was looking at the crowd. He had a big smile on his face. He was, you know, acknowledging people. And then, he's known as a guy that will do a crazy shot, like nobody else takes risks, but he'll go up there. He'll, he'll, I've seen the guy on video hit a shot backwards one time over his head, in a tournament. That's what he's known as. And it was just amazing how the energy just went up as he went through the room. Have you ever had somebody that you really admire, that you really appreciate, that you really look up to? Maybe a, a coach, a parent, a, you know, a relative, a, a well-known person. And there's a sense of connection. I've kind of lost it for golf. I don't feel it as much, but I, I now feel it for Rick Steves. I like Rick Steves. Those of you guys, you guys, okay, so Rick Steves. <laughs> is a travel guy, and he does shows about traveling. And when you get older, like us over there, we like to travel. And so he's like my hero now. I want to go travel with Rick Steves somewhere. I feel like I know the guy. We went to travel, and we were like, where'd he go? Oh, let's go there. You know, like, you ever have someone like that? That's Jesus. 
That's Jesus to us 2,000 years ago. People are cheering. He passes by on a donkey and he's crying and you're crying. You don't even know why, but you're crying because he's going by. You're just happy to see him. A few days later, you wake up and there's a commotion outside. You go downstairs, you go to the street just outside your, your place. There's a crowd there, but they're angry. Like, what's going on? Ah, oh, the high priest, they've convicted Jesus. He's a blasphemer. He's a fraud. And they're crucifying him. And just then, there he goes, right by you again. Beaten, bloody, carrying his cross. People are hurling slurs at him, spitting, hating him. And, and you can't help yourself. There's, there's a part of you that's so angry that he was a fraud. I can't believe I was taken by this guy. And you, you spit on the ground. You turn away in disgust. The festival's over. Unleavened bread's done. You go back home. For the next few weeks, you're just kind of sad. Your hero had fallen. But then you hear some rumors. A little bit at first, but they start trickling in that maybe Jesus is still alive. Well, wait a second. I saw him. There's no way he's going to be alive. No, they say he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. What? So now you're like excited to go to Pentecost, to Shabbat. Even the kids are like, okay, let's go. <laughs> you make the journey, all your friends, your community, you're there. You stay at your same place. You're upstairs, you're unpacking. Your kids are downstairs playing with their other festival friends. They have that term now, festival friends. Like social network friends, it's their festival friends. They see them three times a year. <laughs> and you hear a thunder. It's a strange thunder. It's a loud thunder. You don't know what it is. You go outside. You're trying to find out where it's coming from. And you go over to a, a house that you know where some of Jesus' followers would stay at often. Heck, you even had dinner with them last Passover. And the noise is coming from the house. And then you see them and their hair is on fire. And they're speaking languages that you know they could never speak before. And you're going, what is happening right now? And Peter, who, shoot, your kids grew up playing together. They're festival friends together. You've had dinner with them every year for the past five years on the third day of the festival. It's your thing. He starts telling the crowd that Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead. And all of a sudden, all of this... These feelings of familiarity and connection and who Jesus was to you. He was your hero. All of a sudden, he was fallen, but now he's, maybe he's not so bad. Maybe he's actually better than I thought he was. And you hear people in the crowd start saying, I saw him rise. I've seen him risen. And then you remember that you cursed him. Did you stop talking to his brothers? You wrote them off as frauds. Yeah, you didn't kill him, but you sure weren't on his team. You had turned your back. And you start to feel a little bad. <laughs> Whoa, he, he, he's the son of God? 
he rose from the dead and I just made an enemy out of him? Uh-oh. And then people in the crowd start going, what do we do? What do we do, Peter? How do we make this right? How do we atone for this? And then you hear yourself say, what do I do, Peter? That is called repentance. There's no better picture in the Bible of people repenting than those in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when they came to the realization that they had bet against Jesus and they turned their back on Him but they knew him and they knew in their heart that he was a good guy and they had seen him do good things and he was their hero at one point, but now he was dirt to them. He was nothing to them. But now he's the son of God all of a sudden. He's resurrected from the dead and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, what a knucklehead am I? And everybody, a lot of your friends are saying the same thing. I can't believe it. How did we miss this? Why, why, why did we turn our back so easily? I mean, those high priests make up stories all the time. They make falsely, falsely accused people all the time. Romans are killing people falsely all the time. Why did we buy into that? But you did. You feel bad and you ask, what shall I do? That is repentance. In its simplest form, repentance means to change. The Greek word is metaneo. And it refers to a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. And that is exactly what we see happen in Acts 2. You all of a sudden had this realization that maybe Jesus was who he said he was. And suddenly you go, I need to do something different now. I need to, I need to make amends. I need to atone. I need to make this right. You know, it's been almost 29 years since I came to the belief that Jesus is Lord. That I experienced metanoia. And I can honestly say that it has changed my life. That one decision has affected my life more than any other decision I have ever made or will ever make. It has changed the course and the trajectory and the direction of my life. I know many of you have made the same, come to the same realization, that you've made the same decision to make Jesus Lord. And I know many of you have changed your life because of it. That is metaneo. But you know, we all have people in our lives who have not made that choice. They've not come to that realization. Not everybody in the crowd in Acts 2 came to that realization. The Bible just tells us out of the thousands, 3,000 made that change, but there were many others who didn't. I'd love to figure out how to help them make that change, wouldn't you? And I want you to think right now about someone in your life, someone maybe in your household, your neighbor, your oikos, your colleague, coworker, classmate, family, friend, whatever, but think about someone who has not made that decision, who's not come to that realization, and they're not changed as a result. What's the best way to help them make that change? Is it to go and just start reading the Bible to them? Maybe. 
Is it to go sit them down and confront them on why they need to make the change? Maybe. I, I don't know, but I do know one thing. People will respond to your change. So there's a sister in our fellowship. I won't say who. I don't want to embarrass her, but you're going to know who it is as soon as I tell the story. She's a wonderful sister, but she recently has lost a lot of weight. And I didn't think she needed to lose any weight. I mean, she looked great before, but she has. She just decided and she lost a lot of weight. And what I've noticed is everybody's talking about her. Oh my gosh, you see how much weight she lost? Oh my gosh, she looks amazing. There's something about change, seeing someone change, that makes us talk about their change. We start noticing them. And we want to, and sometimes it even motivates us to make similar changes. Maybe the best way to help those people who you're thinking about right now or that person you're thinking about right now to make the change you made whenever you met annoyed and called Jesus Lord, maybe the best way is to see is for them to see you change still. It's not so much about how good we are, it's how good we are at changing that makes pe- a different in people's lives. If you really think about it, there's a lot of really good people out there, and I would be like, wow, that guy's amazing. But when you see them continue to change and continue to grow and continue to be different because of something they believe, that makes a change in me. That gets my attention. I want to challenge you, church. I'm talking to the church. Have you met annoyed? Have you had this change and it's past tense and you're kind of done? You've hit where you need to go and you're good enough? I really believe that the concept of metanoia of this change that results in behavior change, this mind change that results in behavior change, is not meant to be a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And I really believe that if we continue to grow and change and continue to experience metanoia because of our belief in Jesus Christ, our, our, our actions start to be different. If we continue to do that, more and more people are going to start to notice you more often. And maybe you'll have the opportunity to tell them why. Maybe at the right time, in the right moment, they'll go, hey, man, what is going on with you? Back to golf for a second. I, you guys know Richard. He's a dear friend. We love Richard and him and his wife, Barb, been coming to church for a while now. And Richard and I have a regular appointment hitting golf balls. Like I said, I'm not very good at golf. And I haven't played in a long time. And so it's quite embarrassing to go hit balls with Richard because he can hit the ball and I hit grounders. And I used to be able to hit the ball, but now I hit grounders. It's very frustrating. Unbeknownst to Richard, though, I have been secretly going to the driving range on my own. <laughs> because I am tired of embarrassing myself with him at the driving range. And I got to say, finally, last time I was there, I was finally hitting the ball like I used to be able to hit the ball. And now I can't wait till I see Richard again. Because he's going to say, Jesus is Lord. When he sees me hit the ball, that's done. He's done. Jesus is truly the Lord. What about you? What's your change? What needs the metanoia in your life? What, what mind change needs to keep going? I need to be a better husband. 
Maybe you need to go to another place in your marriage. We've got marriage dynamics coming up. Spencers are leading it. Maybe you guys ought to go. Maybe you ought to take your marriage to the next level. There's the HD program that we run. The, the, the Hicks are doing that. Maybe you need to work on your relationships. You need some healthy relationships. Get in those classes. Family groups are starting up in February. Maybe it's just as simple as going to family group and staying going and being connected and participating in the group and having that circle of friends around you. And then, you know, it brightens your day, it brightens your life. People start to notice, hey, you look happier. Oh, you know, I've been reconnecting with my friends. We have this little group on Thursday or whatever. Oh, maybe I'd like to come. Yeah, come on out. I don't know. You know, though. I want to challenge you, church, to keep letting repentance occur in your life. Keep metanoying because of your faith in Jesus, your belief that he's Lord. Keep letting it change your behavior. There's no better testimony than a changed life. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you. So Peter, in responding to the people in the crowd who suddenly had this metanoia because they had a familiar connection to Jesus. It wasn't out of the blue. They knew who he was. They had a connection there. There was familiarity there. They realized they had made a mistake. They felt bad about what their mistake was. They asked, how do we make it right? Peter responds to them. He says, repent and be baptized. Now, we've already talked about repentance. We've just spent a lot of time on it. Metanoia. Jesus is Lord. My life is going to be different. That's repentance. But now I want to talk about baptism and the significance of baptism. Now, I said at my intro that I was going to stick in Acts 2, but I needed, for context purposes, to kind of take a peek back in history and look at some other, uh, other uh, passages to, to help us understand why Peter would have said baptism in the first place. Because if you just read Acts 2 and you have no context, it seems like a weird ask, doesn't it? Well, okay, Jesus, Lord, okay, great, what do I do? Well, repent of your sin, okay, I kind of make that sense, but now what? Baptism, what? What does that have to do with anything? Well, let's find out. Leviticus chapter 16. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. And he is to have, he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offerings for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. So we're way back when the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, the same time when the pilgrimage feasts were being created, God created what was called the Day of Atonement. It was a day in which the high priest would baptize himself. The word means to immerse. He would bathe himself and offer sacrifices for his sin and for the people's sin, and that all their sin would be atoned for. And it was a wonderful day. They called it Yom Kippur. It started at, it kicked off the festival of Sukkot, 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 whatever. It kicked off that festival. I don't speak Hebrew. 
But this event, the Day of Atonement, wasn't, didn't just happen once. Aaron did it every year at the festival or just before the festival. He did it every year. And every high priest after him did the same thing. And so like the festivals for centuries, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would baptize himself as part of the ritual to make atonement for their and his sin and the people's sin, they would see that every year. You would grow up knowing exactly what was going on and you would hear the stories about it and you'd see it happen when you went and visited the temple on that day. Clearly, the idea of atoning for your sin, of righting a wrong through being immersed in water was cemented in the minds of everyday believers in Acts 2 and had been for centuries. It was cemented in the Jewish mindset. Why we in our modern world think baptism is disconnected from everything else is bizarre to me. I don't know why that happened. It seems to have happened a few hundred years ago where suddenly baptism would just became a, uh, you know, an, a maybe, an if, if you'd like to. But Prior to that, even back into the history of the Jewish faith, baptism was a very uh, uh, regular, uh, it was a very familiar thing to people. It wasn't strange or unusual, and they did it. The high priest did it every year to atone for sin. As a matter of fact, there were lots of reasons why people got baptized in the, Jew, in, in the Jewish faith. Sometimes they were making vows. Sometimes they were renewing their commitments. As a matter of fact, there were baptistries, they call them mikvahs, all around the Temple Mount in Jesus' day. It wasn't unusual. Here's even weirder. It wasn't even unusual among pagan cultures. They even baptized. There's some sort of natural connection that gets made between starting over, washing away your sin, you know, making atonement, and having a bath. There's some sort of connection that happens there. We all kind of understand it. And so when Peter says... Repent, metanoi, and be immersed, baptism. It was like, okay, no big deal. Of course, that makes total sense. We messed up with Jesus and we got to make, make that right. We got to atone. It was surprising to no one that Peter told them to be baptized. What was surprising is what he said next. But we're not going to talk about that today. You're going to have to wait till next week. You're going to have to come back to find out what is it that made Peter's statement about being baptized in relation to atoning for your mistake with Jesus, what made it so different and unique and has resulted in the Christian church that's next Sunday. For now, I'm going to ask that you let marinate the idea of metanoia this week. That you just stew, meditate, think about, let it just rattle around in your head this idea of ongoing change. That real repentance isn't a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing thing. And that even those of us that are up in age, John Teal, <laughs> can, still, <laughs> can still metanoia. 
He can still repent. He can still change. He can still become different. And when he does, people notice. Let's be those people. Because there's a world of people that need to know it's possible.